1580. Delighted to have you with us today in this hour. We are moving ever closer on the eve, are we? Celebrating the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter this weekend, July 15th, Saturday, all day, 12 to 6 p.m. Uh, here in Los Angeles, in Lamert Park, we'll be celebrating 10 years of Black Lives Matter's work and witness. Thousands of folk all across the country descending on Los Angeles this weekend, uh, where this hashtag was founded here in California, to celebrate again 10 years of the work of Black Lives Matter. Looking forward to Saturday. Going to be a great day. Of performances, some great, uh, I was in a meeting yesterday, a great music artist uh, performing uh, this weekend, some great speakers, including Dr. Cornell West, who takes the stage about 4.30, um, Dominic DePrima and yours truly are two of the main stage hosts this Saturday for what they're calling the People's Justice Festival. The People's Justice Festival, again, chapters of BLM all around the country, descending on L.A. this weekend, should be a great day this Saturday in Lamert Park, again, 12 to 6 p.m., uh, as we are on the eve of that grand celebration this weekend, whether it is the negative stereotypes in media, uh, microaggressions at work, suspicious treatment by store clerks or the outright killings of black folk by police and self-deputized citizens, it is undeniable, even still, that black folk are exposed to various and vicious forms of racism. These occurrences leave mental and emotional injuries known as racial trauma. Uh, and 10 years after uh, the creation, the founding of BLM, the question remains, what are black folk to do about racial trauma? Enter Dr. Wendy Talley, licensed clinician, uh, who we uh, welcome back to this program. Uh, she's a corporate wellness expert and founder and CEO of the Lease Consulting Group. Dr. Talley, welcome back to KBLA. It's been a while. How are you? How have you been? I am well. Thank you, Tavis. It is great to be back. How are you? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am doing well, and I'm delighted to uh, to be in dialogue with you for this hour. Uh, I wanted to have you on because um, I'm trying to cover as, as much ground as I can cover here as we, again, celebrate the 10th mm-hmm. anniversary of Black Lives Matter this weekend. Uh, here in Los Angeles, and I take some. I take some pride. I think we all should take some pride. This station is flagshipped here. We have people listening to us right now all across the nation. But it means something that the sisters who uh, started this hashtag and 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 founded BLM are all LA based, California based. Uh, and so I, I take great pride in in something that was created here, curated here, and now regarded and respected uh, and. Uh, uh, around the globe. Uh, and so uh, we are, again, looking forward to our, our, our celebration uh, this Saturday. But it raises all kinds of questions about what we have endured over the last 10 years, what BLM has been fighting against over the last 10 years. And certainly this stuff existed long before 10 years ago. Uh, so I wanted to check in with you uh, for the hour uh, to talk about racial uh, trauma. And, and, and I think the place I want to start is, is here. Over the last 10 years, um, there have been any number, I don't need to tell you this or the audience, there have been any number of videotapes of the beatings, um, the murder, frankly, uh, of African-American men and women. Uh, But we, we have seen these videotapes time and time and time again, whether it's Michael Brown, whether it is obviously George Floyd, um, the list goes on and on and on. Um, of the uh, footage that we have seen countless times. So I want to start by asking what impact, we'll get to the 
to the other stuff a little bit later here. But what, what impact does it have on us uh, to continue con- to continue seeing those kinds of images repeatedly? Well, Tavis, that that is something that we are constantly experiencing, not only out loud right now, but in actuality, we've been experiencing it internally in silence. And, you know, this can definitely be um, bifold in a sense of, you know, we are experiencing this not only mentally, but we are also experiencing it medically. Mm. And when you talk about racial trauma, it's not something of just, oh, I feel discriminated against. You know, my, my employer doesn't make me feel safe or, you know, I've been called, you know, various different names other than a child of God, you know, at the grocery store. But this is something that can um, definitely impact you physically where you are experiencing stress. Um, you know, in the medical field and having health disparities where a person can experience digestive systems, headaches, um, problems with their vision. And, you, and, you, and I know many people will say, well, what that has to do with racial trauma? Well, racial trauma brings on the, the feelings and the constant exposure to stress. And so when you talk about those images that not only we were bombarded with, you know, um, especially during the time at the beginning of the pandemic and all of those types of things, those images are being, you know, conformed and, and, and transformed within our body chemically where we are experiencing it physically and we're being harmed in that way. And so our health care is declining. And then mentally we experience depression and anxiety. So there are so many different aspects how racial trauma can actually affect us medically and mentally. Yeah, I, 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 I'm no I'm no researcher in this space, but I, I would posit that seeing those kinds of images on 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 videotape time and time again, for some reinforces a sense of worthlessness, um, helplessness, hopelessness. All three of those things come to mind when you think about the George George Floyd videotape. There is a sense when you watch that 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 your black life is worthless. Um, clearly, Absolutely. clearly he was helpless uh, in that moment. Uh, and because Derek Chauvin would not remove his knee off his neck, he was hopeless in that moment. He's calling out for his mother who had long since been deceased, but calling for his mother no less in that moment. So talk to me about the ways in which, again, imbibing this this imagery time and time again can lead to some people uh, who don't have strong constitutions feeling worthless and helpless and hopeless and more. Absolutely. You know, we can take it all back even from, you know, but even before social media, we can take it back in the backwoods of the South where we would see our fathers, our grandfathers, our children, our babies, our mothers being hanged from a tree. Mm -hmm. And so that vision of being shown, you know, to slaves who would watch this, this was kind of a way to, you know, put them in line to be able to mentally be able to say, you are not worthy. You are less than. And, and, you know, you need to be conformed. And so we bring this through over time. And then we got, you know, people like George Floyd. We got folks of all different men and women you see on police cameras, you know, being manhandled and disrespected and shot and you name it. This gives a sense of, am I safe? Mm -hmm. I'm a mother. I'm I'm a black mother of a black son. 
you know, and I have a black husband. And even though I know these things, it still brings me into a space of, am I safe? You know, is, does my life even matter? And so we get into those spaces of depression and that worthlessness, guess where that leads to? Mm -hmm. That worthlessness goes into that sabotage within the workplace. It goes within the school system, the daycare, everywhere you go. Am I worthy of being able to function? Do I even matter? Do my existence even matter? Which leads from before our previous conversations about the increase in suicide amongst our young children. Mm -hmm. You know, and so it is it is a it is something that is just constantly happening. And so when you get into these spaces of mental health and therapists, we are having to reinforce even before we even begin treatment that you matter, that your life is worth living. Just getting started in this hour, Dr. Wendy Talley talking about uh, racial trauma uh, and what black folk are to do about it. It's going to be a rich conversation. Stay where you are. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, in pushing back on police brutality and the like, uh, it is still the case that we are uh, subjected uh, to all kinds of maltreatment uh, that I want to sort of unpack in this hour and, and get some advice on how we, as we move forward, perhaps deal better uh, with the racial trauma that uh, that we are we are experiencing. Um, you said a few things already, Doctor Talley. I, I, I want to go. I want to go back to. I, I think I want to to start with this. Um, we all saw. I mentioned those videotapes that we've seen over the last ten years um, that we many of us have watched too many times. Um, certainly, George Floyd has been that video has been viewed more than anything else. I, 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 I'm, I'm certain. And yet, when those cops, those black cops in Memphis, hurt and killed that precious brother there, that videotape um, was seen uh, by many of us. And what many people saw, of course, on that videotape were black folk taking on that sort of bad behavior, internalizing that bad behavior. These were black cops who were guilty and responsible. That that case is making its way forward to trial now. Those cases, I should say, making their way forward to trial. But just using that as an example, but, but talk to me more broadly uh, about the ways in which we take on the behavior born of the racial trauma that we have been subjected to. Does that make sense? Yes, it it really does. Because again, let's go back to just basic, um, you know, human behavior, mm -hmm. regardless of where we come from, regardless of what language we speak, we learn. Okay, we are all learners. We're learners from the moment that we are able to even breathe even within our mother's womb. Okay. And so we learn auditory, we learn visually, but we also learn through pain. We also learn through punishment mm. and we also learn through reward. And so I'm not a police officer. You know, my father was an LAPD officer many years ago and retired, you know, Army War veteran and all of that. Mm. So I don't claim to know what goes on on the inside. But I will say this, when you are a part of a system and a culture and a belief that there are certain things that are okay, or if you don't do certain things, then uh, then there is a cause and effect. Mm -hmm. You know, if this happens, then this will happen. You know, and, you know, there are some retaliation in those things. So I cannot say what was in the mind of these, you know, I want to call them gentlemen, but, you know, I'm going to be nice on radio. <laughs> uh, you know, I want to be able to say that there's something in their 
um, the, you know, in their work line of work that made them believe that this was okay. Something where someone said, there's an if then, mm. and they got the okay to do this. And unfortunately, you know, of course, they got caught, but fortunate for us, you know, they did get caught. So it's unfortunate for them and, un, you know, unfortunate for them and fortunate for us. But when you talk about learned behavior, right, and those individuals making that, it's something that says to us, if I don't do this, then this is going to happen to me. It's a survival mode. Mm -hmm. And so if I got to sacrifice my brother in order to get ahead, in order to be um, accepted by the majority, by the white culture of my department, guess what I'm going to do? Not everyone does it, mm -hmm. but some people will agree to do that because at least they feel that they're valuable because they wear the badge, they wear the gun. Yeah. I wrote about this in my book, um, My Journey with Maya. Uh, Maya Angelou was like a godmother to me. Uh, and I wrote a book about our almost 30-year relationship. And in the book, I was able to share a number of things that I'd learned in conversations with Maya Angelou. And one of the things I write about in, in this book is is the following line that, that uh, Maya Angelou shared with me on more than one occasion. She said to me many times, Tavis, processing pain without perpetuating pain is rough business. Processing pain without perpetuating pain is rough business. Can you link that comment from Maya Angelou to racial trauma, racial trauma on the one hand, and then this notion that processing pain without perpetuating pain is difficult to not do. You know, when you talk about that space, when you talk about perpetuating, you know, that pain and, you know, and processing it, sometimes we tend to separate it, right? We, te we tend to separate it. But when we are we are when we are actually displaying that pain, when we are feeling like this is something that I must do, you know, it's a struggle. It's a it's a battle within. Mm -hmm. And so when we when we are in those spaces, we have to make certain choices, and we always cannot make those certain choices. And then we feel the pain of either doing something or not doing something, or processing it or not processing it. We tend to isolate, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think I think that you know when we are constantly not only visually seeing pain, but we're receiving the pain. You know, when we are having to be able to, you know, you know, just you know, push that out when we have to also portray that pain, we do it in a way of hurt, like hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, we really need to understand it from a perspective of not only am I receiving it, but how am I also giving it back out, you know, and that can take so many different um, spaces as well. Yep. There are a number of things I want to walk through uh, one at a time. Uh, I mentioned them earlier because here we are again, 10 years into uh, the legacy of Black Lives Matter and mm -hmm. the work and witness they have engaged has made a difference, no question about it. But all of this persists. Um, so the negative stereotypes in the media persist. The microaggressions at work persist. Uh, being looked at and treated suspiciously, uh, suspiciously by store clerks um, uh, persist. Um, outright killings of black folk by police uh, and the self-deputized Karens of the world. That behavior or misbehavior persists. Uh, and so, uh, again, it, it is the case. This is not victimization. This isn't victimhood. It is the case. Uh, the, it, is the, it is a fact. 
that black people are still subjected to various and vicious forms of, of racism and, 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 and uh, bad behavior. So let me just take those one at a time uh, and get some advice from you on how we uh, address, how we navigate these particular spaces. Let me start with the negative stereotypes in the media. If ever there were a reality that, that persists, it is the following that in the media there are still negative stereotypes of African-Americans. There still is not um, the texture and the complexity of the lives that we live that show up on the screen, that show up oftentimes in advertising, et cetera, et cetera. So what say you about the racial trauma that many of us experience born of the negative stereotypes in media? We'll start with that one. Wow. Media is what? It is the it is pretty much the book that we re, all of us read from, mm-hmm. right? Whether we learn language or, you know, from the time we start learning our language to the time, you know, we start actually speaking, you know, and, and giving back the same thing that we've learned. And so when you look at media and, you know, and how black people are being portrayed, I'm a first start with the black woman. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the way to do that, the way you want to damage and bring down those images, you first attack the black woman, the black mother. Okay. And so you're attacking life. And so when we look at those things and, you know, and we're bringing those things to the forefront of everything is bad, you know, from being overly sexualized to being angry, to being seen as violent, as Mm -hmm. animals, as not being worthy. And so when media constantly do this and we have some reality TVs shows that are constantly perpetuating and making money off of black people, not only attacking one another, Mm -hmm. but also to, you know, being able to attack their 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 families and, and their children and things like that. So when you make money off of the demise of your own race, you're not really helping. You're actually contributing to the to the whole idea of bringing down the black image. So the things that we definitely need to be able to do is to advocate, be able to change those images, put images out there that are better, and not for us to be able to agree to these bad images out there in the media. I may need money. I may be a struggling actress, but just because you offer me an opportunity to come on the neg- on on TV and shake my butt, that I'm supposed to get all of this money, you know, and that's supposed to be a positive thing. So now we're bringing down the value of Black Lives Matter. We're bringing down the value of just people who have shaped this country and history, people like yourself, you know. And so when it comes to media, we need to be an advocate and to change our own image first and foremost, and not feed into those things that are currently out there. And we need to engage in those conversations. I think I heard in there a strong critique of of the images that we ourselves put on screen in many of these black reality TV shows. I mean, there's a long list of them, but I thought I heard a pretty strong critique of that. Yes. Yes, it is. It is. We have to take accountability for ourselves. Mm-hmm. See, the one thing, you know, when we're fighting, we have we have our team out there. We have a team of black leaders that are out there fighting the, you know, the bigger systems, right? From politics, the White House, you name it. They're doing that, the justice system. They're out there, they're advocating. But we need to take accountability of what we put out there. We need to take accountability of what we agree to. So we have to first make sure that our image that we put out there represents something that's positive, something that's innovative, creative, 
culture that's about education, that's about innovation, and also even about fun. We're not taking the fun out of it, mm-hmm. but there's a level of respect. And so we have to take ownership. See, we can be able to say, oh, what you did or what you guys are putting out there. But if we don't show up to the table, how can they put it out there? But as long as we're showing up in our Ubers, as long as we're showing up at the table and we're signing our life on the dotted line for a measly little check and we're still going back home to our apartment, guess what? That basically says the continued belief of you can be bought and you can be sold. Mm. And it doesn't matter because you do not hold value to your own community. Mm. You know, I'm a I'm a clinician. I actually see clinicians that are out there that are doing things that I would never represent myself. And it's bringing down the, the, the image of just black mental health professionals in the business. There's a lot of them out there. You know, whether it's TikTok or social or any type of Twitter or Instagram, I cringe because then now you got somebody that's looking for me to do the exact same thing, but I hold myself at a different caliber. Yeah. And so we need to be able to do that. So those that's the negative stereotypes in media. Uh, when we come forward after news traffic and sports, we'll move to microaggressions at work. I don't know a black person anywhere. Uh, who has not been subjected, is not being subjected perhaps even as we speak uh, to a variety of microaggressions at work. We're talking about racial trauma and all the different ways it shows up and what we can do about it uh, in the days, uh, weeks, and months ahead. Our guest is Dr. Wendy Talley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 15. I want to move now to talk about microaggressions at work uh, and how those of us who are in workspaces every day and subjected to colleagues who engage in microaggression, sometimes they are aware of it, sometimes they are not. Uh, I always make the point, Dr. Talley, sometimes it's racism, sometimes it's just ignorance. (laughs) But whether it's racist or whether it's ignorant, it's still a microaggression. Many of us are often subjected to it. What say you uh, to black people uh, about uh, the racial trauma of microaggressions in the workplace? Well, you know, with that, one thing about work is that this is something that we do. We spend how many hours with our colleagues in the workplace, whether if we're in the living room or whether if we're in the um, office space. That is very impactful when it comes to racial trauma because it's constantly in our ear and it's in our face, mm-hmm. which is also mimicking the social media, you know, images that are constantly in our ear and in our face. And so those impacts can affect, you know, uh, your job performance and things like that. You know, a study that was done, you know, um, released by Harvard basically stated that, you know, 21% of white peers really believe that they're allies you know, in the workplace to their BIPOC or their, you know, people of color counterparts. But in actuality, sometimes ignorance or sometimes racism, you know, plays a part. And it almost seems like it's a game. It's a part of fashion. And so when you deal with those, you know, those racial or those microaggressions that are in the workplace, it can come out in the in the various different languages and the questions and the comments, you know, that we make. You know, even in the workplace, when you ask somebody or when you say to somebody, you know, I don't see color when I look at you. Mm-hmm. How can you not? <laughs> not only from the outfit that I'm wearing, but from the beautiful melon that's, ex- you know, that is, you know, sitting here in front of you. And how can you not see color? And so that is a form of ignorance and sometimes even a form of, you know, kind of calling your bluff and maybe even demeaning your level of intelligence that you would even think that 
I would even be okay with something like that. And it gives them a pass, you know, to be able to say that I can be okay in my whiteness and I can make you feel okay in your blackness as long as I don't see you. Because if you don't see my color, you don't see me as at all. And so I think in the workplace, when you talk about these microaggressions, you talk about it in space of, you know, how can we impact, you know, black leaders from, you know, executives to, you know, supervisors, even to line staff, you know, there's a gap on actually how can we actually progress in the workspace? How can we promote? How can we feel good about going into the workplace? I speak to a lot of executive leaders. I even speak to entertainers. Mm -hmm. And privately, they talk to me about how they would just drive into the parking lot. And all of a sudden, they would begin to get hit with anxiety, Mm -hmm. depression, imposter syndrome, and saying, why am I here? Why do I deserve this? I don't want to be here anymore. I am tired of being me. Mm I'm tired of being me because it's too much for me to handle. And so those microaggressions can really make a big impact on every part of you as as a professional and even, you know, in the workplace. As as a as a licensed clinician, when uh, you are talking to clients and they are sharing with you their own personal stories of the microaggressions that they encounter at work and uh, the toll is taking on them, how they don't want to be there anymore. I mentioned um, a few days ago on this program uh, a survey I read not long ago that the overwhelming majority of black folk in this country do not like the jobs to which they go every day. Most of us hate the jobs that we go to for a variety of reasons. But when you're talking to your clients about microaggressions in the workplace, h- how do you advise them? What counsel do you give them for how to deal with that? Like, what do you say? What do you do to coworkers? who happen not to be black, who microaggress up on you. How, how, how do you deal with that? How do you navigate that? You know what's so interesting? It actually even happens to me when I'm in a session with mm. someone who is not of color, mm. you know, and <laughs> after blinking and breathing and taking a sip of coffee <laughs> and, and internally praying for grace, um, you know, I have to ask them, where did that come from? Mm. Let's talk about what just happened. Mm-hmm. And so what... Where you're seeing a lot of the Karens and the Kens that are happening, what's happening is now is that I'm calling you on the stuff that you've been told that it's okay to say and do. Mm-hmm. I am calling you out on that. I am now making you accountable. And your your skin complexion no longer gets to, you know, exclude you from taking responsibility. And so how I talk to my clients about that, those that actually do it to me in actually therapy sessions, but also to those that, you know, how do I deal with my boss? How do I deal with my employees? I'm a black leader, but they are, they are you know, displaying to me microaggressions. One thing, the first thing I tell them is this. Know exactly why you're there, okay, when you are experiencing that. But those that actually do the microaggressions, I always ask them, where did that come from? Talk to me about where that belief in that comment and or question you just stated. Where did that come from? And what do you, Let's and what, go back. And, and what do you, not, not, to cut, not to cut you off. And, and what do you no, typically? What, and, and what do you typically hear when you ask them where in the world did that just come from? What do you typically hear? Usually, I get a blank stare mm-hmm. and a few blinks, 
and I usually hear the 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 wonderful get out of jail free card. I don't know. Well, let's <laughs> talk about how you don't know that, right? So let's talk about let's break down the sentence. Mm-hmm. And what I end up finding is that it, it it's this need to feel included. This this need to feel like if I make them feel seen by me, I give them value. Mm. My 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 recognition mm. to this black or this black or brown or Asian um, employee, if I tell them I see you and I try to align myself with you, I'm giving you value in the workplace. Not the fact that you are a Ph.D., not the fact that you graduated from some of the best HBCUs in the country, not the fact that you have, you know, changed some world things. You are an inventor. You are a creator. Mm -hmm. Not the fact that you're the vice president. My my acknowledgement of you gives you value. So that's where the entitlement and that's where the privilege comes in. Mm -hmm. So my whiteness gives you value. Mm -hmm. And guess where that comes from? Childhood. Mm-hmm. Remember, I said earlier, it's about the learned behavior. See, we all come out of this world with one thought in mind. I just want my needs met and I just want to be loved. Mm-hmm. And where the separation comes from is how do we act around other people? How do I make you feel comfortable? If you can just be yourself and own yourself, then we can have a dialogue and a relationship. See, for me, I deal with a lot of racist people all day long, and those are some of my best people that I work with that want to work with me, and we have the best relationship. Why? Because of the fact that I have boundaries. So that person that gives those, make those microaggressions, we have to first talk about boundaries. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Believe what you believe. That is yours to own, but you cannot give it to the person that you're doing it to mm-hmm. for them to hold it for you. Mm-hmm. I will not carry your trash bag outside of your house, and I don't even live there. That is yours. Mm. And so in those sessions, I'm constantly working with people who don't even understand. I actually just had a client I just ended with that got fired because of the fact that he said that there was a popular song back in the 20s by a very well-known activist and that talked about lynching. And he loved the song so much, he started to sing it to his black employee. And I, 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 why would you do that? You work in IT. Yeah. <laughs> why are you singing this song? And he, in his mind, he said, I don't have any hatred. I just like the song. What is it about this song that you like so much that talks about the lynching of another? Mm. And then he looks at me. And I said, let's talk about that. Because that comes from somewhere. And we had to go deep and we had to go into his automatic thinking that black people, when he was growing up, his grandparents and his parents told him that he was part of a chosen people. And those folks over there, they were less than. Mm -hmm. So you grew up with this belief system. So when you said this to this young lady at the workplace in IT, and I don't know why y'all having these kind of songs, but when you did that, you just told her she's no good. She's she's less than. And I'm better than you because I can sing this and you can't do nothing about it. But you're mad at her for because you got fired for doing something like that. Yeah, um, I, I suspect when you are a, a, a licensed clinician and you are in a session and you are victimized, you are subject to a microaggression. I assume, Doctor Talley, you you can't you can't snap off, can you? No, I can't. No, I can't. <laughs> There's several things that go into my head. Yeah. You know, I, when I get off the phone, I have to 
call the girls and yeah. okay. And you know, but it happens to me quite often. Yeah. Because I, look at my name. Let's start with my name. Yeah. My first name is Wendy. Now we've gotten used to the fact that many people of color are named Wendy. But growing up in the seventies, that wasn't a common name yeah. for black little girls. Yeah. So when when I get my when I get my clients who are Caucasian, what ends up happening is when I log on and I pop up with this beautiful melon that I got my lips on and we're ready to make this happen, I see a pause. And then what I do is I'll say, it's okay. I want you to breathe this through. Okay? Hold, hold, I want you to ask me every question. Hold that, hold that thought for a second. I'm laughing even though it's not funny. She has to, she has to level set. At the very beginning of the conversation, because they see your face like, oh, my God. Uh, we'll continue, Dr. Wendy Talley, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 50. Wendy Talley, you were, you were on a roll, and I, I hated to cut you off, but now we can take it to the top of the hour here. So let, let, me, let me ask you to back up again uh, and tell me what happens in these moments where, as you said, you put your lips on and you, you, you go on Zoom where people come into your office, and all of a sudden they realize that Dr. Wendy is actually a black uh, licensed clinician. Um, t- tell me about tell me about what those mo- what those moments feel like and how it is that you sort of husband yourself and you can go ahead and do the job that you are professionally trained to do when when you yourself in that moment have been victimized by a microaggression. <laughs> You know, over 23 years of doing this type of work, and prior to that being a full black woman from Los Angeles, California, South Central, uh, you know, I have learned over time that not to accept how people, you know, view me. Mm -hmm. Yes, it hurts. Yes, I have to deal with it. But I don't have to own it. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm in those moments and and they they come onto the screen or if they, you know, we're we're getting back to in-person now, they walk, I walk out of the office and I say, good morning. And and I see this look on their face and I give it a moment of pause. Mm -hmm. And what I like to do is give a safe space for you to feel the way that you need to feel and ask me whatever questions you need to ask me and, and, you know, whatever concerns that you may have. Sometimes I will even ask them, are you comfortable with me being a a black woman sitting in front of you, providing you mental health services? Mm. Sometimes I will just ask the question because you have to break it. And, you know, at first I can see that they're feeling uncomfortable. It's okay. And I will tell them, I can't own what you've been raised with. Because it's not mine to own. Anybody, so let's anybody, talk about that. anybody ever told you? Yes, I, I, I am bothered by the fact that you're a black clinician. Yes, yes. And this what, person's and, been with me now three years. <laughs> this person's been with me for three years. So, so how'd, you, had, how'd, uh, how'd, you, how'd you get how'd you get through that when they told you when they admitted to you? Yes, I got a problem that you were a black woman, and, and they're still with you three years later. How did you navigate through that? I navigated by talking about what are you experiencing? Mm-hmm. Talk to me physically. How am I making you feel? Let's talk about that. What does, and then I'll say is, what is that connected to? What trauma in the past did you connect that with? Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's experience that they've seen outside of themselves that parents or their community may have exposed them to. So that's how I deal with it. I take it away from me. Let's talk about how this impacts you. So what other areas in life do you feel uncomfortable with people that look like me? And that's in the beginning. Mm. That's in the beginning. So I take it away from myself. And then at the end of the conversation, what I find that most people say is this. 
I've never actually been comfortable to talk about it, but because you made me feel okay to be myself, and then actually I did not want to even have these feelings, but this is something that I've been brought up to believe, you made me feel comfortable to talk about it. And now I can, I feel like I'm safe with you. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about safety. Where did that, where did the lack of safety come from? Who did that to you? So now I need to put a person to it, right? That in a lot of times, it's never me. Me, meaning not Wendy, but a black person that looked like me. And so when I dig deep into that, that's how I do that. And why they're with me for three years? The reason is because I can now connect with you on levels that you have that you've been wanting to go to that nobody has ever been able to uh, penetrate. So, 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 what do we say then uh, to African Americans, uh, no doubt listening right now, who have therapists, uh, have persons they go talk to, um, and what comes out of these conversations uh, is the racial trauma that they have been subjected to, but they happen to be talking to a white therapist because there are a whole lot more of them than there are of you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that happens quite a bit, and this is why we have a wait list. But if you have a therapist that does not look like you, that you do not feel that connects with you, have the conversation. Surprisingly enough, you can still have the conversation with some. Mm-hmm. And not and, and don't make it based off of your skin color, you know, because, you know, civilization started with us. Mm-hmm. So we can create all things. So sometimes someone who may be passing as white could actually be black. So let's determine for that and if you guys are comfortable in talking about it. But at the end of the day, if you do not feel that your clinician is culturally competent and they are not understanding you from the space that you want to be understood from, you have the right to change. Do not, and I repeat, anyone that's listening, just because they're sitting in that room with that degree behind their head does not mean you're obligated to speak to them. You can choose whomever you want to talk to. But I will say this, not every black therapist can relate to every black person Mm. because our experiences do not always transcend across the board. Mm. There are clinicians, there are patients that have come to me that said that I cannot relate to them. Yeah. And I can't and I can even say that I can't really even relate to them either because of the fact that I just can't seem to can't penetrate it. Yeah. We're not connecting. The chemistry is not there. No, I get that. I got two minutes left here. I, I guess I, I want to close mm-hmm. on this note. Um, not a happy note. Uh, maybe you can flip it for me. But it, yeah. my, my concern is that for all of us who are subjected to these microaggressions and the stereotypes and in, in, in media and, and outright killings by police of, our, of, of black people and maltreated when you walk into a store and looked at funny for all that racial trauma that we endure. Um, I don't know where black folk writ large go for help. If you're talking to white therapists who aren't culturally competent uh, on the one hand, or you're trying to pray your way through this, I believe in Jesus. I pray to Jesus every day, but there's sometimes you, you need to talk some things out. I just don't know how we deal ultimately with the racial trauma that we are subjected to. So let me close on that note with you and get, and get your take on that. Yes. And I can just give you some major points. And sure. I will first and say this. If you believe in God and you believe that God created all things, you cannot separate all things if all things was created by God. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So whether if it's a clinician, whether if it's therapy, God has created all things. Mm-hmm. And prayer and therapy works. This is why there's counseling in the church. Yeah. Where does counseling come from? Where does counsel come from? So 
pray and go to therapy at the same time is definitely one thing. Also, too, acknowledge it. Don't try to hide behind it and say, okay, it's happening outside of me. But how are you participating in it in your own home? Mm. And that's why I talk about we have to take accountability of what we accept. And then also, too, you know, practice some self-compassion. How do you do that? Please give yourself grace. Mm -hmm. Give yourself grace in those spaces that if you're feeling what you're feeling, it is valid. and You don't need somebody else's opinion or their skin complexion to give you value and validation. Participate in activities like that's going to be happening this Saturday in Lamert Park. Go where you're celebrated. Go where the melon is beautiful. Mm. Go where you see the smiles and the culture and the food and the essence and the smells out there that kind of reinforce why and bring your kids yeah. right bring your kids so they can see those kinds of things yeah. those are some things that you can do and stay connected and build those communities where you are safe dr wendy talent you always welcome on this program you always make us think you always provide insights that uh, that are empowering uh, uplifting uh, inspiring and uh, at your best and uh, you challenge us to re-examine the assumptions we hold you help us expand our inventory of ideas i've enjoyed this conversation immensely as i always do thank you for your time we'll do it again somewhere down the road absolutely thank you i appreciate you in our third and final hour today we'll be joined by the mother of trayvon martin sabrina fulton on kbla talk 15.